0: When you don't really have another option, you have to be positive, right? I do realize that I have been dealt a lot of rough cards, but also have a ton of positive things happen in my life. We Ken, for example. Without her, I don't think I would be as positive. Having to go through that injury alone is not something I would want wish upon anyone. And I think there's always a lot to look forward to in life. I'm still young. So I have a long life to live and I'm alive. I'm still me when you're really on the brink of death. Not even sure if you're going to make it out of the ICU. I'm right? pretty much only looking from that standpoint. So be able to still do what I love, which is building companies. I'd right? still be with the person who I love. But I can't, right? like that's like most people spend their whole life looking for stuff like that. And just found that so early in my life. So I feel very fortunate in many ways. And so that's a lot to be positive about, a lot to smile about.
1: Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Sue. Hi, this is Will Chang. As always, I have my co-host, Andrew Shu with me.
2: Hey, good to be here.
1: Today, we are joined by our friend, Anthony Zhang. At the age of 18, Anthony dropped out of college to take the Teal Fellowship and pursue his first startup, Envoy Now, which was acquired by Joyrun and then by Walmart. Seven years ago, at the age of 21, Anthony suffered a life-changing accident that left him as a quadriplegic. Although he's recovered and functions since, he's still currently in a wheelchair. Today, Anthony is the co-founder and CEO of VinoVest. VinoVest helps investors diversify their portfolios into rare wine and whiskey, an asset class that has outperformed the S&P over the past three decades. VinoVest has over $100 million in assets under management. Welcome, Anthony.
0: Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on here.
1: The last week, you and your wife, McKenna, generously hosted a Christmas dinner for us. At dinner, I learned that your wife is studying an occupational therapist, inspired by the journey that you've had together. The two of you met as teenagers a decade ago at USC, and she's been with you this entire time through all of the ups and downs, through multiple entrepreneurial journeys, and through the accident and recovery. I can help but admire the determination and resiliency both of you must have had to get to where you are today. What's incredible to me, and I think to Andrew as well, is what you've experienced and what you've accomplished while you're still only in your 20s. So I want to understand where that comes from. I want to start from the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood?
0: Absolutely. Born in the Bay Area, Fremont, which wasn't much of a town, but now everyone knows it was the Tesla factory town. But I don't remember it at all because I think when I was six or seven months, we moved to Hong Kong. Then for a few years, we moved to Vancouver and to Frankfurt. And to Beijing which is where I spent the bulk of my child went to international school there like many others from all over the place in my class where we had less than a hundred classmates there were over 40 nationalities represented which now looking back I thought was really really cool being able to part of so many different cultures high school came back to the United States did boarding school on the East Coast and then finished up my schooling at public high school in the, back in the Bay Area and I think really the major thing about my childhood that I would say that makes it unique is just having moved around so much, right? Always being the new kid, which is never easy. And it actually turned from something that I dreaded having to move again into something that I enjoyed. I almost saw it as a challenge, whether a new class or even a new summer camp to go to during the summer. It was almost like, all right, bunch of new people. I'm excited to meet them. How can I sort of be able to be in the group and find my people, my friends as fast as possible? And I think that having to adapt so many times also helps me later in life when going through both business and life challenges that I really did not a big.
1: Actually, I went to high school in Fremont. From going to suburbs of California to Frankfurt to Vancouver, Hong Kong, Beijing, private school in New Hampshire, and then gone in Palo Alto. These places are so different. The people that are going to those schools are so different, and like culture differences are so different too. Can you tell us a little bit of just about? Being the new kid and adapting and just just trying to understand that context for people that are listening.
0: Yeah, it was the new kid, right? New environment is never easy, but you can also learn so much, right? And I think what I really appreciated about being in so many different cultures and backgrounds was that there's always something that you can learn coming into one of your friends' families, right? Everyone has their own customs and traditions, right? Even if we're in the same city, right? There's always different rituals that people haven't. I think it's to me, like I'm personally just fascinated by that and I respect that too. Even I noticed right in, at the dinner that we're at last week, half of us asked if we should take our shoes off at the door and half of us didn't. Even something like that most people from Asian cultures just think as an automatic, right? It's something that's kind of really ingrained growing up. And I think being exposed to so many different cultures just made me also really appreciate it. Even though you're different, you can't even understand each other's languages. But There's always commonality to find in people. And I think finding that helps you connect with people. And that's something that I really enjoy doing.
1: So at 18, you went to USC and your freshman year of college, you started Envoy Now. What's really cool is that you actually have a historical document on YouTube of you pitching in front of all the students in Shark Tank style to Mark Cuban and him basically saying like, oh, yeah, I want to fund you. It's quite amazing to see an 18 year old with that type of confidence to going up on stage and be able to pitch like that. It's quite incredible. How did you? Number one is like have that confidence at such a young age. And number two is like how did you even think know about business and and build this company at 18?
0: Yeah, I'm still so embarrassed to watch that clip. By the way, I don't know how frequently you listen back to your podcast, but I think a lot of us who are recorded, right, we're like think our voice is weird, we think we look weird, or said the wrong thing. So. I very reluctantly watched that video only a handful of times. But that night, right, I wasn't the first student startup to pitch Mark Cuban. We'd just come off another company where they were very rightfully so nervous, right? And as a shark, right, you can you can smell if there's blood in the water. And Mark Cuban just ripped them to shreds. And I was like, I don't want that to happen to me. So I have to over index for being confident, almost cocky, right? and come out there guns blazing, and that's what I did, right? I think for those of you who watched Shark Tank, you're standing in front of the sharks and they're all laying back in their chairs. They're all comfortable. You're kind of up there like a student who like did something bad, being reprimanded by the principal. So what I did was I sat right next to him on the chair. I was like, all right, we're on the same level now. And then I pitched him, Right. and I did my research. We had one of the markets that we were live in was Indiana University, which was his alma mater. It was making references back to his college days, drinking days, bars and restaurants that were popular to him. So I wanted to just make it feel like we're not just you and some stranger. right? There's some sort of level of connection. There's a reason why I'm going to stand out compared to the other students who are pitching you. And no, I'm afraid I don't really have, I don't have an opportunity like this ever. I was lucky enough to get picked off the audience to get to pitch for our cuban i'm not going to squander this opportunity
1: so how far along were you when your business when that happened
0: so this is actually my software year that i pitched for our cuban so i was about a year into the business uh, we'd seen some success at usc we would launched our second campus all place in indiana so we we're just super lucky to be able to have i thought it'd be ucla or somewhere local that we'd expand to as our second campus but it was some student who had seen an envoy now delivery on his snap stories and was like, hey, I was just trying to start the same thing. Can I be your first general manager? I was like, sure. right." I didn't know anything about business, but I was like, hey, okay, well, I guess now we have two campuses and this is how we're going to try to run things and replicate the playbook of that early success that we saw at USC campus adapted to the campus traditions of Indiana, right? Because speaking of cultures and traditions, right? Every single college is almost like it's mini tribe, mini country with all sorts of crazy things that we do that somehow make sense and adapted to the Indiana playbook. You go for it, right? And that's kind of how it all started and really was the playbook for how we were able to beat out much more well-funded competitors in a lot of our markets was really stayed true to the specific DNA of each college campus.
1: Just for the audience, can you tell us a little bit about Envoy Now and what made it different from other delivery services?
0: So we were an on-demand food delivery app. We were focused on the college campus market and what made us special was that we were only by students forced. So what that meant was on the delivery side, you couldn't just be like some random local sign up, want to make money. You have to have an EDU address, right? And all of our delivery zones were all gated. So only on campus, off campus housing. And we would partner with the local dining halls, right? So you could use your points. So we were just so well entrenched and ingrained into each campus. And plus, like each campus rep, they went there, they were students, they were graduate students. So it really had a homegrown feel to it. And it felt like, oh, I know the main guy at the USC campus, he's the general manager, right? You almost have a sense of pride, right, in your fellow classmates or fellow alumni when you're starting something like that. And I think that that really helped us beat up the competition, the Postmates and Uber Eats of the world.
1: And then, so what does your time look like in terms of when you were starting it, you were still going to school? How much time were you we spending on school versus how much time were you we spending Envoy now? And what did that look like?
0: Yeah. So luckily as a business major, I was barely doing any work. So as I wasn't a comp sci major, I wasn't a pre-med major. So got lucky in that regard. And a lot of my classes were these sort of like case study cell classes where like create a pretend business and pitch it to me, right? And read these HBS case studies, these Harvard Business School case studies, and then create a hypothesis, right? So I would use my business ongoing now as that for everything. So it saved me a lot of work because I'm already doing this in real life. So it was really a natural sort of extension where I I just felt, right, I'm doing more and more real life work. And maybe I can skip this business class because I already know what the case study is going to be. I already know what my final presentation is going to be because I'm living that life, right? So I think both of those really helped me establish some work-life balance so to say even though technically a full-time student
1: was mark cuban your first investor
0: yeah that was my first first angel investment so.
1: i mean where we are today we look at that and we're like okay yeah maybe he took a lot of way too much equity but when you're 19 years old a hundred thousand dollars is like a lot of money right and so when he became your first investor was he hands-on in terms of helping you operationalize and grow or was he basically just gave you the money and he left you alone
0: no i mean And the offer was really him and Mark Burnett, who was also there that day, so the Shark Tank producer, they actually went 50-50 on the deal. And it was very hands-off. He's both many, many, many angel investments. And that was fine, though, because a few months later, I was lucky enough to get into the Teal Fellowship and then also joined a startup accelerator program five hundred startups in the Bay Area. So those two were much more hands-on programs. And I think that if I didn't have those, I would have definitely relied more on both Marks for their advice and their experience. I was very lucky with the growth of InnoVest to have a lot of hands-on support right after that. It was like a bunch of dominoes that all just fell into place.
1: Yeah, 500 startups, I've gone through it. They're great for distribution and they teach you so much about distribution. So did you drop out of college for Teal Fellow before going up to Northern California for 500 Startups or how does that timeline work?
0: Yeah. So I'd gotten into the Teal Fellowship, I think like right when I was beginning the 500 Startups program and that was during the summer. So I didn't have to make that decision yet. And then when I actually accepted the program was right after the accelerator program anyway. So that's when I decided to take it and I put in my leave of absence, technically still a student right now, just with a, a very long leave of absence.
1: You're in a group of just some incredible people, including like Vitalik, Buterin and all these crazy people. When you were a part of the Teal Fellowship, were you able to build relationships with the other people in that group?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really one of my most important sources of relationships, because especially running a business is always lonely, but running a business as a college student, while all of your other college buddies are doing college student things, right? Not stressing out about your runway and your burn. That was like my only source of friends who could talk to me about this, right? I can't just be like to my college buddy, like, how's life going? I'm like, stressed out. I've got burn and investors and all this. They're just like, I've got my next final to study for, right? We're just in such different stages of life. And actually, speaking of Vitalik, right? Big reason why I moved on to crypto after Envoy Now was actually being able to meet him. He was a few years before me, but we do semi-annual Teal Fellowship events and retreats. And I remember just hearing about Ethereum and Kichlis launched a token and I was like, I have no idea what the hell this is, but this guy's really smart. So I'll put a, a few hundred dollars into buying Ethereum when it was less than $5. So I was like, okay, throw some money in there. I didn't have much to invest and Now obviously I wish I put way more money into that. But just meeting some folks who are just so incredibly smart, but also just people who are my age going through similar problems, And being able to just have a shoulder to lean on, I think that was the real value of the Teal Fellowship.
1: One of the things I'm really curious about is what do you think sets apart people that are Teal Fellows Fellowship people? Are they just from like genetically, they just have more ability or is it from a young age, they're able to see the world a little bit differently? Like what do you think sets them apart?
0: I think with the people I know from the Fellowship, it's a lot of both, right? There are some that I knew like, all right, you we're always a savant, like you are destined for this. Like you are on talking on a different level right now. And then there's other folks who are just like sort of more of like the lemonade stand when they were four years old, kind of like hustling all the way up through middle school, high school. And they're like just about, just love starting things, love building things, right? There's kind of like the two different types of people. I think I would fall more into the latter camp. I don't think I'm a genius or a savant or anything, but it's very obvious and it's very different when you're at that like retreat, right? The Folks who are like are standing in the corner look, and then there's the folks who are like really social and, and talking to everyone.
1: So how many years in and at what point, like where the company was ongoing now when you had your accident?
0: So we were, I think, about maybe, let's see, two and a half, three years in business. We at least over 10 markets, if not 15 markets, and I was actually out raising our student, And that was when I had my accident where dove into a pool. I didn't know the depth of the pool, didn't know how shallow it was, and immediately just hit my head on the bottom and. Paralyzed on impact. So it shattered my C5 vertebrae on my neck. And what that means is that everything, not even just at that level, but everything shoulders down could not move, could not really feel. And then also from an organ standpoint, a lot of lung and diaphragm damage. So combined with the pool injury where I was partially drowning, it was made for a really tough recovery where in the ICU and even outside the ICU, I was on a ventilator for nearly
1: six months. I've seen pictures of you when you're in college and you're like a very good looking, muscular guy. I've seen you talk on stage and you're very charismatic and you and your wife now, but girlfriend then McKenna were together, right? And when you had your accident and one of the things that I think like blew me away outside of like everything that you've accomplished after the accident, but actually the strength of your relationship, you're able to keep going this entire time today where you guys are married now. Is incredible to me. And I wanted to just learn more about that because I'd imagine, I mean, most people, I would say probably 99% of people, when what you envision in your life changes, you can't stay. You have to complete shift, right? And McKenna was able to stay with you through this entire journey. Can you just talk a little bit more about the process in which, after the six months, getting off the ventilator, adjusting to your new reality, and how you were able to continue on living your life?
0: Yeah. I mean, McKenna, I met her the first or second week of college. So we lived down the hall from each other at USC. You know, We're both in Greek life, so my fraternity would do a lot of mixers with her sorority. We were all just really good friends to start off with. We didn't start dating until about a year into college. And she was with me that night, I got injured. And we were both still teenagers at the time. And it was just something that I couldn't really imagine anyone going through, let alone someone who's still in college, right? And having to deal with the weight of that almost all by herself because my parents were not even in the United States at the time. They were in Beijing. So it wasn't until several days until I was even able to see my mom person. So it was Kenna. Luckily, McKenna's parents flew out to the ICU, right? It was just immediately like she just took action when I needed anyone the most, Her definitely. Right. And every day I'm so grateful for her in terms of putting her entire life on us for me. She was in college at the time. She took an entire year off of school. Right. And to to take care, she was in the ICU. Right. There's no like companion or patient bed. Like she slept on a chair every single night in the ICU because she didn't want me to be alone in the middle of the night. And even when I was in rehab, right, going through all that rehabilitation advocating for me as a patient, really being able to still see me as me when I was just given up, right? Like you said, I was very athletic, loved working out, like was very outgoing and think like a lot of young guys, like a lot is on your appearance, right? And going from that to not being able to move anything, not being able to talk, not being able to even feed yourself or toilet yourself or shower yourself, right? And I was like, who's gonna love me like this? And she was always there for me, never wavered. And helped me believe that not only could I still be me, I didn't have a brain injury, thank God, but it was still someone that she wanted to be with for the long run. So the utmost admiration, appreciation, and just I look up to McKenna in that regard because to have that level of, I don't know what what you call it, but like at that age, right, and under those circumstances, I wouldn't have blamed anybody for just being, this is too much for me. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to leave, or we need to take a pause, right? I saw... Many married couples even break up post-injury like that. The fact that we'd only been dating in college for a year and she had everything that she possessed at that time and still does now, it's just...
1: Yeah, I have immense admiration, respect for both of you as well. I mean, for a college kid, yeah, I completely agree. For a college kid to be able to give up her life like that, not even on a promise, because when you get married, you're committed. But this is like a couple of years into your college and she's changing her entire life based on the situation. And also for you to continue to, I think, have the confidence to be her partner, right? Because I would imagine that when you go through something like that, it completely shakes your reality and it shakes your identity. Like you lose that confidence and how do you continually uphold that confidence for the other person is incredibly and admirable as well.
0: Yeah. I still struggle with that too. Just knowing that I can't physically do some things for her, right? And working really hard to become more and more independent so I can, but it's still a constant struggle. But having her encouragement and a big Reason why I'm as independent as I am today was because she was essentially my physical therapist, plus doctor, plus occupational therapist, plus psychologist, all in one, right? Like we'd be doing all of the therapy and the rehab during the day. And then after 5 p.m., when most patients are resting, like she was like, hey, let's keep working on those things that this physical therapist told you that you should practice, right? And like held me accountable. And when i wanted a goal she wasn't the one to say like your your is going to stop you i don't think you're ready for this right she was like all right let's find a way to do it you want to do this let's try it. right and a big goal that she helped me achieve just in the last year was being able to drive independently again yeah. i didn't think i could even think that was possible for a quadriplegic to drive especially one with you know my level of injury my level of physical ability but she helped me not only physically train for it but actually like create tools from scratch that didn't even exist to put in my car so I could drive safe. So it's just incredible having someone believe in you and have that creativity can do to change someone's quality of life. I think that's why she'll be a really amazing OT when she finishes up school.
1: You've written a tweet about the realities of spinal cord injuries and some of the statistics. You probably don't remember most of them, but I just wanted to give the audience something to compare to or something to just understand the context for them to understand how incredible your story is. So could you just tell us a little bit about spinal injury?
0: I'll say, first of all, I knew nothing about spinal cord injuries when I got hurt, right? I thought I was like, oh, you know, it's like breaking your back or your neck, like people heal from that. Or is it like having an ACL tear? You can come back from that. Unfortunately, damaging your spinal cord is not something that the medical world has a cure for yet. So for most people, a permanent injury, and it's not just losing your ability to move something, right? People usually think like, oh, you're in a wheelchair, it means just you can't move your legs, right? It's you can't move your legs. You can't really feel your legs. You can't feel pain down there. You can't feel hot and cold down there, right? And that also leads to a lot of issues around bowels, bladders, right? None of that works normally. So it's a lot of sort of things that are more than meets the eye. And then of course, just the accessibility, right? If you live your life in a wheelchair, the world is much, much more different. and think United States is really, really great when it comes to accessibility, right? Like most, if not all public establishments have a ramp and wider parking spaces for people who need a ramp to be able to get out of their car. But it's especially noticeable when you travel outside the country. For example, McKenna and I were in Italy for a honeymoon. Love Italy, but it's a cobblestone filled country. And I was just like bouncing my ass up and down in the wheelchair, eating shit left and right. My wheels would get stuck in the gaps in the cobblestone. I fully just bailed out of my chair. And. Luckily, very helpful people are like putting me back in my chair off the ground. But it really made me appreciate that we're in this modern day and age, even though there's a lot that can be done to improve accessibility in America, at least we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. At least there is, with being a much younger country, the infrastructure to be able to change things. And you know, when you're in other countries, not so much. There's not the same types of laws and standards there.
1: I'm just going to read a couple of stats that you have in your tweet. Unemployment rates 83% for disabled people versus 3.8% for all Americans. A 25-year-old paraplegic will spend $2.49 million in lifetime medical costs. For disabled people versus non-disabled people, anxiety 19% versus 14%, depression 29% versus 9%, multiple mental health conditions 37% versus 23%. I think it's pretty obvious like how losing a lot of your function in your body can lead to just a lot of like mental health problems or not problems, but issues. Because even just like being a normal bodied person, like I think we all encounter that, right? And so like a mindset perspective, I think what's really incredible to me is your ability to kind of come out of that. And so you were six months on a ventilator, you were raising your series A and your company was slow running. How did you end up getting back to the business? Because you ended up actually selling it. And so how did you end up gaining that like ability to start working again, to get, get your business back on track?
0: Yeah. I mean, that first statistic, right? About over 80% of people with spinal bridges never work again. That one really hit me because I wanted to still be useful to society, right? I still thought I had a lot to give and I was running this business, right? I was like, all right, series A, we're still growing everything, right? And I was in the middle of the fundraise. After I got off my ventilator, my co-founders put me on a conference call and they were like, hey, Anthony, like we didn't really want to bother you on this, but we feel like we should just fold down the company. We should just return the money. It's not really the same. We wanted to all just go back to college and being normal college students and I'm sure everyone would understand. And at that point, I was still just grappling with the reality that was my new life and I didn't really want to let another thing go. I'd already felt like I'd lost so much, I didn't want to lose what was at that point, still a really big part of my identity, right? I was like, Anthony, the startup kid who dropped out of school, right? And like, you know, now I'm like, Anthony, the one who's like in the hospital and didn't wanna be the one who like was in the hospital and lost his business while I was at it. Like, what else am I gonna lose, right? And that's what uh, made me wanna come back to the business. So even after they had left the company, my investors allowed me to keep running. it. Remember, I'm doing this really big Zoom call. We were maybe like 40, 50, people at the time. So it was like, pretty sure we hit the limit for Zoom. And I was like, hey, like I'm in the hospital. It's their first time seeing me in like six, seven months. I was like, even though these two co-founders have left, I want to come back and run the company as CEO. I think that we all owe it to ourselves to be able to try at least to be able to get a positive exit. We put a lot of hours into this. People's livelihoods are on the line. And also a lot of investors put their money into their belief, right? And I'm sure as listeners know, and you guys know too, right? Like the early stage, they're on people. It's not really on metrics or company idea. So I also felt the sense of responsibility that I was like, I don't want to let my investors down without a fight. If by the end of the year, we'll give it six, nine months. If we don't get acquired, at least we can say we've fully explored all options and then we can return our investors' money. And thankfully, they're all on board had that sort of renewed energy to be able to run this company again, just not wanting to give up on just another thing. Actually, I think having that balance helps a lot with my mental health as well because I was so focused on my physical recovery and I think just grappling with the fact that oh, I'm not advancing as fast as I would like. It's not like the gym in which if you put in more hours, you're just gonna get the results, right? It's neurological, so a lot of times it's not a linear path. I needed something else to like pour my energy into and that was my business and was really lucky enough to have that and have the support of the rest of my company to be able to come back as CEO and, and run it.
1: I have a photo of you in the hospital with a little Envoy Now pillow and it's quite apparent I guess that a photo of you before the accident versus the photo of you afterwards before you were very strong charismatic pretty athletic and then after the accident you lost all your muscle function because you probably been in bed for a really long time and You said that you gained a lot of function today after seven years, but probably at the time, there was a lot of function that you're still trying to build back up. And so I'm curious at that point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to run the company again, but you're in this physical state. How did you actually start taking over some of the responsibility and start running it?
0: Yeah. I remember that photo because I was at my lowest weight, 5'11". I was 165, 170 pounds. I was 115 when that photo was taken. So I was literally skin and bones. I couldn't even raise my arm. If my arm fell from where my wheelchair armrest was resting, I didn't even have the energy to pick it back up and put it back on. That's how weak I was because I was essentially in bed for the last, I think, maybe two months, three months at that point. And one of my very first functional goals was to be able to use my iPhone again. I had not used the phone in many months. I was just not wanting to really deal with reality, deal with emails, deal with social media. So I had kind of sworn off of that. And when, after I had that conference call, I was like, all right, at least I need to be strong enough to be able to use a touch screen, right? So that was actually one of my first occupational therapy functional goals was to be able to lift my arm high enough to be able to touch my phone screen. And that gave me more motivation to do it because I remember I would type out an email with with Siri. Of course, Siri would get a few things wrong. And I didn't even have the energy to or the sort of fine motor function to be able to edit and like click the touch button. I would get tired after just doing that. And being on a ventilator, I couldn't even finish a whole sentence of dictation. It would take me maybe 30 minutes to write out like a hundred word email. Right, And all of that was just things that I had to get stronger at and through repetition, through doing it also helps me just have a little bit more purpose into my recovery as well.
1: Blake Masters, the president of Teal Foundation, the guy that helped Zero to One, describes a conversation with you after the accident. He described you as startling positive. And he said that, good luck finding someone that will hold him back. I'm just curious, where does that come from? How have you been able to be so positive and so determined versus I would imagine just most people, including myself, might have basically allowed themselves to just give up? I think
0: when you don't really have another option, you have to be positive. Right. I do realize that I have been dealt a lot of rough cards, but also have a ton of positive things happen in my life. Mechanic, for example. Without her, I don't think I would be as positive. Having to go through that injury alone is not something I would want wish upon anyone. And I think there's always a lot to look forward to in life. I'm still young, still have a long life to live and I'm alive. I'm still me. I think there's when you're really on the brink of death and like not even sure if you're going to make it out of the ICU. Right? Pretty much only looking from that standpoint. So be able to still do what I love, which is building companies. I'd right? still be with the person who I love, McKenna. Right? Like that's like most people spend their whole life looking for stuff like that. And just found that so early in my life. So I feel very fortunate in many ways. And so that's a lot to be positive about, a lot to smile about.
1: So after the you still continue to grow the company. You had over 20 college campuses. You had maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe 1,500 student employees. This is a massive company, and it's incredible how you were able to do that at this age, and were able to sell this company to Joyrun. Could you just talk a little bit about the acquisition process?
0: Yeah, we had, even before the injury and being seeking out an acquisition, we had a lot of acquisition interest, which was why I felt pretty positive about our prospects coming back to run the company, and turn it around for the sole purpose of acquisition. The on-delivery, on-demand food delivery market was going through a lot of consolidation because pretty much was a land grab. Everyone's discounting your delivery fees just to get more customers, and then they know once they've got enough critical mass, they can start flipping to positive unit economics. So I knew that we had all the most desirable college campuses, all these really important chess pieces for a lot of players. So in running that process, I was really lucky to have some advisors and investors Anthony Pompliano and Elizabeth Yin both were just really instrumental. We were doing weekly calls, prepping me for the acquisition, just like a fundraising process, right? It's sales, right? You got to get the right outreach, got to do the right follow-ups, got to run the right pipeline, be able to have multiple term sheets and offers, right? It's something I've done before, right? Raising a seed round, going for a series A round, but not really selling. Instead of selling a piece of your company, it's selling the whole thing. So having that and being able to know that, hey, like we've built a great company. We know that the market's shifting in this favor of consolidation as well. We had a lot of timing things go right for us to make the acquisition.
1: And then how much time did you spend there after the acquisition?
0: Almost a year. I think I was there for maybe 10 or 11 months after the acquisition before before I left.
1: Did you leave for Bocfolio or would you just do something in the between?
0: So I was actually doing what was, what started out as a side project called Know Your BC. There have been many iterations of this, but at the time, this was like 2017. So in Hollywood, the whole like Harvey Weinstein scandal was breaking the whole Me Too movement. Similar Me Too movement was happening in Silicon Valley with a lot of big prominent VCs getting outed for just doing all sorts of shady, disgusting, bad stuff, right, like sexual harassment, discrimination, all of that stuff. So for me, as a male Chinese American founder, right, I kind of had it easy on the fundraising trip. I was like, all right, went to a decent school, know, I'm a guy, right? Like I'm kind of fitting the archetype of a startup founder, even then fundraising was super hard, right? And then imagine if you're from the Midwest, or imagine if you're a woman, imagine if you're 50 years old, right? There's all sorts of ageism, racism, sexism that happens in startup world, but especially when you're pitching as the CEO of a company. And then to have to deal with all of that other stuff on top of it, I was like, that's just wrong, right? And creating this platform, New Your BC was my way of leveling the playing field a little bit. And because this was all in the news cycle at the time. The site just blew up. We had like hundreds of thousands of monthly uniques. Like it was like a crazy moment seeing the growth in that site. So I'm like, all right, this is really cool. This was a side hustle that I guess can turn into my main hustle for a little bit. And then that kind of overlapped with my interest in crypto. You know, my couple hundred dollars worth of Ethereum was enduring a pretty epic run up around that time too. So like most degenerate crypto people like refreshing my app like multiple times a minute, just to look at the price action. And that's when I got really into crypto. And the main app that I was using to refresh all of my crypto and all my holdings was Blockfolio. So that's really how I got in touch with the Blockfolio folks and ended up joining them.
1: I remember that moment. I was actually in 500 when that whole thing happened. When the Me Too movement (laughs) happened to 500 startups. And I was actually in that process. Yeah, it was crazy. I was also refreshing Blockfolio at that time as well. I remember those days. How did you reach out to the founders and get the opportunity because you became the head of marketing and business development. And so just would love to hear your hustle in, in terms of building those relationships and getting a role there.
0: So with a Blockfolio, I was just, I think, DMing or messaging with who I thought was customer support, right? Just giving them some feedback. and things. Turns out it was the founder. The company was, I think, less than 10 people at the time. So the founder was customer support. And I remember just being in touch over the course of a few months. And then when they had a role open for head of marketing, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, I've pretty much been focused on crypto anyways, been living this whole world, being on crypto Twitter and Discord groups and Signal and all that. I think I can be a good representative of this company and grow the marketing. So it was really serendipitous. You know, it was kind of over the course of a few months, just being in the community, right? I think especially. Being in crypto, you kind of need to learn almost a whole other language, right? not only just the technical terms, but also just how to communicate and not only your customers, but also the token projects as well. So it was really just almost a passion turned into an obsession and spending so much time in that world that I totally understood, right, like what they were going for and what they were up against as well.
1: What did LaFolio do to market?
0: So at the time, it was a very interesting time to be ahead of marketing because back then, right, like Facebook wouldn't let you advertise crypto, Google wouldn't let you advertise crypto, like there was really no place that you could spend money, even if you had a budget. And we didn't have much of a budget, right? So it was a lot of like Reddit marketing. It was a lot of Twitter marketing, influencer marketing, community led things, right? And just a lot of content and hype building and momentum building and just being seen with the right influencers, right? But on, you know, say this anonymous crypto avatar that has half a million or a million followers is showing their portfolio holdings. or is showing their technical analysis on charting, we would make sure that they were screenshotting the blockfolio lab. And so it's like, it was like kind of more like covert types of marketing like this, because I think with a lot of communities, right? Like, you know, you're being marketed to like, you're going to think that brand is fake and not resonate with it. So we had to also really be careful, especially in this sort of like pseudonymous world that was crypto back then still is now. I think in the beginning, it really was, right? It was really for the outcasts and degenerates and the outsiders and you really have to keep that feel while still at the same time wanting to be a mainstream brand, right? So it was definitely a really interesting challenge on the branding and marketing side.
1: So Buffalo eventually got acquired by FTX. And I'm sure you guys also went through the upside downs of FTX. Could you just describe to us what that was like?
0: Oh, boy. So my co-founder and I, brands, we knew we were going to get acquired by FTX. So we actually went off and started VinoVest a little bit before Uh, the official announcement. But I remember just with running marketing and biz dev, we were in a lot of those early discussions with Sam and FTX and the team there. And I just remember Sam, also from Palo Alto, had mutual friends, overlapping, lived in Stanford, was like a lot of other people I knew. And I was like, oh, just a really, really smart person. think much more of that. And obviously we're recording this in December, 2023. Everyone knows what went down there. But I remember I was like, that's just random kid who like, lives in Hong Kong with this exchange I'd never heard of, wants to acquire us. Like we were the market leader at the time. I was like, how do they have the money to acquire us? We know now how they had the money to acquire us. But back then it was kind of a mystery, right? I was like, they didn't have. they were mostly for institutional traders. Maybe that's why they didn't have the brand or why many people had heard of them. But afterwards they went on that historic tear, right? Like they had one of the fastest growth stories of any business next year and a half, two years. And I remember just a roller coaster of emotion. You're like quiet, you're happy, and then if your equity from the acquisition now goes 10x, 20x, 40x, you're like, oh my god, I'm never going to work a day in my life. And then the next day, it's all gone. You're like, holy cow, I'm glad I didn't bank on that because it's all gone now. So it was just so wild. You know, I talked with the guys and girls that I worked with there that you know some stayed on with the acquisition, some didn't, but you know, it was just a wild ride and journey. Um, and some folks, like, they were getting their payroll in crypto, even in FTT token. So, of course, it hurt a lot of consumers, millions of consumers, but it also hurt a lot of people that I knew and, you know, considered friends. So, just a crazy
1: time. Tell us a little bit about VinoVest and how you ended up starting VinoVest.
0: So, VinoVest, right, we're a wine and spirits investment platform. I mean, it actually came from in the crypto space, right? A lot of when we're starting to do the real-life meetups, And starting to know some of these really successful crypto traders a lot of them had a taste for the finer things in life right? like fancy watches nice artwork drinking expensive whiskey and wine and just from a fundamental standpoint there's a lot of similarities between say a rare case of wine and bitcoin because they're both very finite objects in terms of their supply right you can never go and make more than the 21 million bitcoin you can never go back in time and make more 2005, Opus One, even though the, everyone loves it, right? And as time goes on, wine actually ages and matures and changes its taste profile, and there's less and less supply due to global consumption. And you can argue that even though like Bitcoin doesn't change, there's definitely more and more people losing their Bitcoin wallets every day, right? So there's technically less supply or accessible supply in circulation as Bitcoin goes on, and it also becomes harder and harder to mine additional Bitcoin. So just from a fundamental like economics standpoint, I really resonated with those. And unlike the coin, it's real. You can touch it, you can feel it, you can drink it. right? And I think after you know, my stint in crypto, I wanted something very tangible, needed that. So I was like, that's the best part. Even if you don't believe us, that this is something real, like we can literally ship it to your home. Everyone's had an experience with wine or whiskey. So learning that it was an investable asset class, it was something that they like, people have only heard about their rich uncle or aunt having a big wine cellar and making money that way and fancy auctions. I was like, this is just an area that was meant to be disrupted, right? A lot of the same usability issues and a lot of the same accessibility issues that I tackled in crypto, it's the same people, right? They're all alternative asset investors, whether it be 10% allocation of Bitcoin or a 10% allocation of wine and whiskey, it's still the same pitch to believe why it's investable. So my co-founder and I, Brent, like we saw a lot of parallels, we decided to jump in and our mission is just to make this asset class something that everyone, they're looking at diversifying their portfolio beyond just stocks, bond and real estate can see as an option and can decide that they want some allocation to it or not.
1: I want to ask a lot of questions about building the business as well as the actual investment and how it works. But I wanted to start out with, VinoVest you know, is just an idea where you guys just spent $500, unbounce page, and you got $300,000 in AUM overnight. Could you talk a little bit more about that process just for us to understand a little bit better?
0: Yeah. I mean, best ROI ever, right? But it was good days, right? Neither me nor my founder are technical, but he has a product. Background. So he whipped up an unbounce page. As you mentioned, between the unbounce page and the few hundred dollars of Facebook ads that we ran, we spent $500 and it was just a wait list so it's like invest in this unlock this asset class or forgot whatever tagline we used and every single person who signed up i gave them an email and gave them a call and just started to learn about who they were what interested them how much money they would put in right what they would need out of a product to consider using it investing in it right and that really was our MVP. after having that i was like all right this is something that has got some room to run let's do this and that's when we recruited our first employee, which was an engineer. We built MVP version in, in two months, and we launched it. And we were able to get our first 100K of AUM. Then after a few months, first million AUM. And first year, we got $10 million in AUM. And I was like, all right, people who don't know anything about wine, they don't even drink, are investing in wine. Like this is, we're definitely to something, right? People see it as a true asset. And I think early days, it was really just out of necessity and scrappiness, because we didn't have the skills to spend months building a prototype, right? We just have what we had, we had marketing, and we had design. So let's use the skills that we have and make something happen.
1: So how do you turn a promise? Okay, so people want to invest with you and they like the idea and they've given you the money. How do you turn that into a reality? Because I'd imagine that, especially the wine industry, there's probably networks that you have to get into to really be taken seriously. I mean, especially someone your age with your experience that hasn't been in this industry? Because today, you guys are storing your wine in underground facilities that even the British Royal Family stores. And so you guys are doing these things that are really legitimate. And so how did you end up going from just an unbounce page to really building a legitimate business?
0: Yeah, great question. I think the first thing is keeping your promise. We told the folks, we're like, hey, like, thank you for your time, right? Like, we're going to be building this. It's going to be done in, I think I said, three months, right? And we over-delivered two months. We're like, hey, we're back, like we said, this is what what we've got for you. And we kept those people in the loop too, right? So I think that also helped to build trust is when you do what you say you're going to do, that's an easy way to build trust. But with the wine industry, you're absolutely right in that. I had nothing in terms of credibility to start out with, right? Like people don't care if you're a two-time startup founder in the wine industry. Like they're like, who do you know? And I was honestly just really lucky. One of my neighbors, when we moved into Culver City, they invited us over for drinks. and. They're like, okay, you know, it's this really charming older couple or like, I don't know if we'll have much in common, but let's go over, let's be neighborly. They're pulling out some crazy bottles of wine. I was like, oh wow, you guys know your wine. And they're like, thanks. Yeah, my daughter is a master Somali and you know, my son-in-law made this wine. I was like, whoa, who are they? And turns out they were some of the top, like most recognized people in the wine world. And I was telling them about this business that I was just started. And they're like, I think they'd be interested in this. And i like, oh, God, like, had the chance to meet them. They saw what I was trying to accomplish, trying to bring more people into the space, really resonated with our vision, and they became advisors to the company. And really, honestly, just piggybacking off of their reputation helped us open those initial doors. And with those initial doors, then you just let your execution and reputation do the rest. So if it weren't for going into the right condo in Culver City and meeting the right people and them being nice enough to invite some new neighbors for drinks, Like, it would have been much, much harder to get to where we are today.
1: So how does it work?
0: How does Vito work? So we really act as almost a robo-advisor, but instead of stocks and bonds, we construct you a diversified portfolio of of wines and whiskeys. So in the same way that the most sort of beefy part of your portfolio would be blue chips, like your Apples, Teslas, Amazons of the world, we've got blue chips of wine. So these would be wines from Bordeaux or Burgundy, wineries that have been around for hundreds of years. And... There's a long standing track record of price appreciation and we will diversify you across different regions, different wine producers, different vintage years, right? So there's a bad harvest or a bad crop or a tariff that hits one country that may impact the prices. You've got diversification in your portfolio. We actually buy those wines you don't share with anybody else. So it's not like you're buying into like a blind fund where everyone's money is commingled together. Everyone has their own seller. well, your wine would be different than my wine and they're all stored in secure facilities that are temperature climate controlled, they're insured and we help you with the market education. Instead of quarterly earnings reports, which doesn't exist for for most wineries, we give you quarterly analysis, right? We give you instead of analyst ratings there's critic scores, right? So there's a lot of parallels for somewhat basic financial knowledge that they can take and learn into the wine world. And when your wine is matured, say 5, 10, 15 years later, we'll help you find a buyer too. So whether it be another wine collector who wants to consume it or a auction house or a high-end restaurant that's looking to add to their wine list, we'll help you actually exit those wines and that's where you get your appreciation, right? So on average, the wine market, it's been around a 10, 11% a year asset class. Very low correlation to the market, so about a 0.12 correlation rate and low volatility. So compared to the S&P, it's exhibited about a third the volatility. So it's really slow and steady. And as I mentioned earlier, it really just depends on the age of the wine and then global consumption do the thing. So you can't really rush the aging process of wine. You can't really rush global consumption unless you have some crazy thing happen like COVID where global wine consumption definitely went up and hasn't really gone back down. That's really how the mechanics of it work. So it's really kind of like an all-in-one solution to buy, manage, sell, investment great wines and whiskies. So if I buy a wine, where is it stored? It depends on where the wine is from, but most of the wine that we buy is French or Italian. So it's going to be in Europe somewhere. And then stored in those warehouses, you'll know kind of exactly where it is. We've had clients come out and visit them before, either in our Napa warehouse, We have one in Hong Kong, one in the UK as well, one in France, and we just keep it safe right? Because unlike a stock, wine can actually get damaged and that asset can go to zero if you
2: don't store it. Properly.
0: How do I sell my wine? So we do all that for you. We have something that we call our sort of maturity windows. So we deem that, all right, this wine is mature enough where most people are looking to drink, it, right? If you wait any longer, it might start to decline in its, in its value and flavor profile. So we analyze a lot of market trends to be able to look at that and determine when the right time to sell is. And we'll just sell for you. So it's kind of like an ETF that automatically rebalances will automatically rebalance your portfolio. So you don't really need to be like, oh, is this a good time to sell or not, right? I don't expect the end user to know that. We'll handle all that for you.
2: Are people picking specific wines? Like you're giving them the analysis, picking specific wines, or is it very much like the robo putting in parameters and then the inventory on the purchase side?
0: Yeah, so we have both products available. So most of our customers, I'd say over 95% are on the robo advisor side because they're not wine experts and do will pretend to be and they just want exposure to it as an asset. But we do have select few or more like traders, right? They're like, "Hey, I'm going to look at the market signals and the charts and make my own picks because I have a specific type of wine that I want to go for that I think will go up." And then Will, to answer your question, you can also drink your wine, so That's also kind of the cool part is like, it is something that you can drink. We shipped cases of wine to our investors before because they're like, all right, I bought this wine just for my wedding anniversary year. Or I bought this wine, it's my son's birth year and now he's turning 21. I want to ship a case to him and share this with him, right? So there's that level of sort of fun that you can have with this asset class that be hard to do in anything else. That's that tangible utility because someone at the end of the day has to enjoy it and drink it.
1: So at the Christmas dinner that you hosted, one of the other founders at the Hampton dinner that we went to, Raj, has been working with you because he owns a vineyard. And one of the things that really stood out to me, because his vineyard has higher elevation, so I think I asked the question of like, what changes the wine based on higher elevation? First of all, I'd love for you to just give that answer but also second, it just blew my mind how incredibly knowledgeable you are. So first, maybe, could you just describe that first just so that I can kind of give some context to ask the next question? Yes,
0: yeah, so the high elevation question, it affects grape growing in a couple ways. But I think the ones that are most important to note is that number one, it's different highs and lows in terms of the daily temperature fluctuations. So a lot of the times when you're at higher altitudes, You guys have gone camping or been in mountainous areas. You notice that there's a larger daytime, nighttime shift, right? It can be super hot. You're baking in the day and really, really cool. That is really excellent for grape growing because when it's hot, right, you have a lot of sugar formation starting to happen in the grape. When it's cold, all that sugar and flavor starts to really condense. So you have these really highly densely concentrated berries. And the second component is that You usually get more sun when you're at higher elevations, right? If you're in the valley floor, you're getting a lot of shade from trees, from the top of them. So you have a lot more uh, ability to have really ripe grapes. The final one is on the yield, right? Because you're at high elevation, it's harder to farm. You get lower yields per acre. So that also usually means that you have more expensive labor costs and therefore more expensive wine that comes out, wines that are growing in mountainous regions.
1: And the reason why I ask you this again is just this answer is just based on one question, right? And I'm sure I can ask you so many different questions and you could probably give me this depth of an answer. And so my question to you is, how did you learn all this information? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of different subtleties and different things about wine that goes into investing and goes into just the brands and VinoVest. How did you end up going through and just understanding all this information for VinoVest?
0: First of all, you ought to love to drink it, Well, I think when I started VinoVest, I had already always had a passion for wine. My wife, McKenna, actually was the one who got me into wine. And I remember wine was her drink of choice when we were going out to dinner. And My drink of choice was like, whatever is in front of me, I'm down to drink. right? I wasn't like a connoisseur by any means, but I wanted to impress her. Right, We're going to nicer restaurants, nicer wine lists. You want to know what to pair with the food. right? know how to talk to the sommelier. So it was really just wanting to impress her to start with that. Helped me kickstart that baseline knowledge and then just like when you're Working at VinoVest, I feel really lucky because we have this confluence of folks who are from the technology and startup world, right, They're tech through and through. We have folks who come from the wine industry or spirits industry, where this is the first tech company they've ever worked at, but they've got a ton of tribal knowledge. And then you have folks that are more like the finance or the data science side, because we're a robo advisor, right? We deal with a ton of data to be able to make decisions. So there's no one at VinoVest who's an expert in all three. So we really noobs at one, experts at the other. And we have the opportunity to learn and share. And a lot of my knowledge comes from our folks who do come from the wine industry sharing their knowledge. And it's just incredible, right? Like you're just an expert in your own field. And it's when you hear it, it's really inspiring, right? And I think also being able to know the story behind the wine and what makes it special plays a big part in the value, right? If it's like, all right, this is a bottle from 1945, right? This is the very last vintage that this winemaker made before they were unfortunately occupied by the Nazis and were killed. So there's no other wine that this winemaker made. And this is from the historic year where the war was over. There's only 100 bottles yeah, right? All of this contributes to the value of this bottle at auction. Because if like there's just some old dusty bottle of wine, no one's going to want it, right? You need to be able to know the story behind it. But a lot of times you get into more technical aspects like the grape growing, the agriculture, the people behind the winemaking as well.
1: What is your biggest challenge? Is it getting more investors on the demand side or is it more building relationships on the supply side? I'd imagine as a brand new startup that's been around maybe four years, when you're comparing to like these brands that have been around for generations, they probably don't take you seriously because of the longevity and it probably takes a lot of time to really build that trust. And so curious, number one is like, let's just start with the first question. Which problem is more urgent for you?
2: I also want to add a question around the buy side too. Because there's three. I'm curious. Like, yeah, I want to add the buy side to that, to Will's question. Well,
0: yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning, it was really hard to be able to get the buy side and suppliers to trust us, right? You guys, some hotshot like Silicon Valley startup. I don't care how much funding you guys have raised. I don't know you. I work with people that my father worked with, who my grandfather worked with, right? And sorry, but the next five years of my vineyard allocation are already all accounted for. We don't need So it was really hard to be able to get that credibility in the beginning. And I think that just through proving to them that we could bring them value, right? Not just buying their product, but showing them that we're introducing their brand, their wine to a new demographic, right? Like our average VinoVest client is not like the average fine wine drinker, right? The average fine wine drinker is probably who you think of when you think of someone with the wine cellar. It's like old, very rich and successful white dude, right? And then our average VinoVest client is probably like 20 years younger, they're in tech, they're in consulting, they're in a bunch of other industries and they don't know much about wine. They're earning more and more, they're starting to spend more and more, and I think these wineries also realize that their current demographic, right, the baby boomer is drinking less and less wine, is making less and less money, is gonna be, unfortunately, probably medically not able to drink alcohol in a few years, right? And they need to be able to start investing in the future while still keeping the day-to-day cash flow strong, So it was really just a few winemakers, all right, I'll give you 1% of my allocation this year. Next year, they're like, all right, I'll give you 5%, right? And we're growing fast enough to be able to take on that rapid expanding market share. And it's really kind of like exercise and trust on both sides, right? Us being able to show them that we can grow as fast as we think and that we are going to be a reliable customer for years and years to come, right? And then on on their side, it's them also being Good to their work, right? It scares a lot of our investors. Like, we don't have any contracts with our suppliers, right? The French, the Italians, the winemakers, they do not do contracts. I tried putting one in front of them. They're like, What the hell is this? Get out of here. They're all just based on relationships and trust and the track record of doing business together. So it requires a lot of trust on both ends and just being able to honor each other's side of the agreement and then continue to grow with each other. And I think that has helped us with our supplier issues. That we had in the beginning, like just in the beginning, it was no one answering my calls, no one answering my emails, and now, right, like we're becoming you know, really important customers to a lot of these really world-renowned wineries. So I'd say, like in terms of your question, Will, on like what's a bigger pressing issue right now, like it's really just been the supply side because when you, when we only have twelve bottles of a wine, we can only sell to a couple people, right, and we can't split those twelve bottles up into twenty-four or anything like that. Um, so. Supply is definitely a constraint, but now being able to have that trust allows us to be able to market more aggressively because we know there's people that are very, very open to new asset classes. We just need to educate them and reach them, right? So that's another problem is that like most people don't know that wine and spirits investing even exists, much less that it's a good asset class, much less that, you is the right place to do it. So that's another challenge that we have on the demand side is that there's just a lot of levels of awareness that we need to pass before someone invests through our platform.
1: As I well was doing research on this interview, actually a lot of the podcasts I listen to about investing, you are actually on there educating investors on wine and why it's a good investment and how to use VinoVest. I know that one of the things that you are doing now or one of your goals is to go upmarket and sell to family offices or people with bigger funds. And so that entire marketing and sales motion is completely different. How do you approach going away from the individual or creating a new sales and marketing motion for the family offices versus the individual investors?
0: It's a totally different ballgame. And I think we, we have learned this throughout many conversations that it's really, again, same with the retail investor, all about trust, but that level of diligence is just on a whole other level, right? Same getting an angel investor versus a VC fund, right? It's, it could be one call with an angel investor, they're going to wire you the money. The VC fund, it's like, hey, data room, financials, references, all of that, right? So it's kind of that same up leveling that we need to do as a company. And the reason why we didn't go after family offices to start with was that all of them want to see a track record. When we're one years old, no one's going to care about a one-year-old track record. Now that we're on year four, crossing that kind of arbitrary, but also kind of important $100 million assets managed mark, right? Those are all really important trust points that we're like, all right, been here for a while. We've been around the block. We know a thing or two about this thing that we're trying to sell you. And also we have multiple years worth of historical data to show you. I think that was really what was missing in those pitches. And I think with the sales motion, you're kind of going back to square one, right? Like I'm deeply involved in all of these sales conversations as the CEO founder, right? And we're kind of just going back to a founder led sales motion until we have enough wins under our belt where we can start to grow a sales force and kind of start that scaling motion.
1: You've also recently expanded to whiskey. How does whiskey differ from wine? And could you just talk about the why of expanding?
0: Yeah, I mean, Whiskey is a really exciting space for us because it's not something that we had originally set out for. Really, the market pulled us in a direction. We had a whiskey waitlist that we launched at the beginning of last year, and it went from zero to, I think, 15,000 people in the course of a year. We weren't really monitoring the waitlist, so we didn't really know it was growing that fast, or else I would have probably launched it sooner. But it was almost something that was an afterthought. I was like, oh, I wonder how the whiskey waitlist is doing. And then I looked at it, and I was like, holy cow, Like it's accelerating too. We have to launch a whiskey product. I am really fortunate that our head of sales comes from a whiskey background. That's his family businesses and not only deeply passionate, but also deeply knowledgeable about whiskey. So we really had a leg up in terms of getting this to market in a really thoughtful way. And I think the main difference that I see on the whiskey side is that the value appreciation is not in the bottle, right? Like if you guys have had whiskey, right? If you open the bottle, it's going to taste the same in one year and 10 years, right? It's really about when it's maturing in the barrel is when a lot of the flavor profile changes, as well as the, the value. If you look on grocery store online, 18-year-old whiskey is always going to cost more than the 15-year-old version, than the 12-year-old version. And it's because of those same scarcity, right, and aging supply and demand dynamics, and then also less and less of it in the barrel because there's a little bit of evaporation every year, right? So maybe if the whiskey was 10 years old, the barrel was full, and when it's 20 years old, maybe the barrel has evaporated, so it's maybe about like 80%. Right. So there's also natural supply decrease even before it hits the market that also just from a fundamental standpoint just makes sense. And when we launched the product, we're like, all right, there's here are the similarities, here are the differences, but it really attracted a whole new different type of audience. Yeah, I think there are wine drinkers, there are whiskey drinkers. Some people just are a little bit more gravitated to one or the other. So it helped us get a lot more net new users as well as become a really valuable cross sell and diversification opportunity for existing users.
1: Where are the whiskey suppliers?
0: So uh, we both do American whiskey and scotch. So the scotch is in Scotland, you know, in bonded warehouses there, and then our American whiskey is here in the United States. So we're really excited about the expansion to American whiskey because that's one of the hottest segments. American bourbon is one of the hottest segments in the market, mainly because with bourbon, you have to age it in new American oak barrels every single time, so you can't reuse the barrels. And there's just not enough oak trees to keep up with increasing demand. So Oak trees, it takes about like 150 to 200 years for them to become mature enough to be made into barrels. There's just no speeding that up, right? Unless someone's inventing synthetic oak in the future that's
2: be allowed to be used. So you were in crypto and you're in this non correlated asset now. So, like, how are you thinking about your portfolio outside of, I'm sure, like, how much you put into the business and your kind of day to day? But, like, how do you think about crypto versus? Vito vest versus whatever else you're in.
0: Yeah, so I would say in terms of my personal portfolio construction, I've got about a third into alternatives, so anything outside of stocks and bonds. In that, I'm kind of all over the place, right, just with my background. Crypto, very risky, and then wine, very safe. Right? So I'm about half and half exposure with that remaining third into like crypto and wine and just some also other highly illiquid angel investments. And I'd say like in terms of my stock and bond portfolio, it's fairly conservative just because I have so much of my net worth tied into VinoVest, right? my equity in VinoVest. So not trying to go super risky there, but I'd say I do have like a higher than normal allocation into alternatives, just because I
2: do believe in what it can do for boosting your overall risk adjusted returns. Totally. That makes great sense. And then, I mean, I have to ask. So just recently, what's been your favorite whiskey and favorite wine? Let's pretend we'll drinks. And so you're taking them out to a dinner. What whiskey and what wine, just for funsies, it doesn't have to be any, some big investment, but just what would you be excited since you, I'm sure, tried quite a bit? Yeah, you know what? I've
0: really been enjoying Irish whiskeys recently. So I like Redbreast, Redbreast Red, Breast, Red Breast 12 or 21. Both are great. So that would be on the whiskey side. I think it's a lot more floral aromatic, has less of that like peaty flavor that some people don't like with scotch, other people love. And then with wine, I love, white burgundies. So Chardonnay from Burgundy, France, especially with, I'd say about like 10, 15 years of age on it. It's a completely different wine than Chardonnays made in America or even just young Chardonnays anywhere else in the world. And I think it's really versatile, right? You can have it with seafood, you can have it with chicken, other poultry, even pork. And So that's been something that I've been really
2: enjoying. Beautiful. Do y'all run metrics on the percentage of the whiskeys and the wines that your investors drink, right? Because they can take out the bottles. So do y'all know, like, (laughs) do you have recommendations or have you kind of seen how much of the investment people also enjoy?
0: Yeah. So I tell them, I'm like, you're messing with your IRR if you're pulling your bottles and literally drinking them to zero. So most people do listen to me. I'd say like out of art, we've got to be like less than 2% of our clients have ever requested a case of wine to drink, right? Because even though, Many of them do love wine. They see this as their investment side. It's far away from them. It's in our warehouses. It's not like something that when their friends are over on a on a Friday night, they're just going to easily reach into and, and drink, right? And they keep their drinking cellar separate from their investment cellar. And that's the same with me. Even though there's a lot of wines that might be in no less portfolio that I'd love to try someday, I'll never take a bottle out because I want the investment returns from my wine investment portfolio to fund my wine drinking on the consumption side so that I can basically drink all this nice wine for free. That's a good plan. Yeah.
1: So you said that your life goal is that you want to inspire people to find their voice and you want to teach entrepreneurs how to thrive despite their biggest challenges. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I think just with having this injury, right, and learning some of the statistics around it, right, never going back to work, dealing with a lot of mental health issues, right? I think obviously other than the very real challenges that you face, a lot of it's also just lack of seeing visible role models. I think we talk about representation a lot, I think especially in the Asian American community, right, with lack of representation in Hollywood and sort of leading figures or in more masculine roles, right? I think the same thing goes for people with disabilities in business, in entertainment, they're usually sort of just like a punchline or not a big role. So that's why it could be any disability or anything that you're dealing with, just knowing that we all do have challenges and that we can thrive because of them or despite. And then I think with that, that gives also me purpose to do things like this, right? Like it's not natural for me to want to go on a ton of podcasts or tweet a lot or post a lot on social media, but I'm like, all right, this can help one person all year sort of change their perspective. Decide to want to go back to work after being disabled for five years or some like young kid who's not sure if they should start this business or not. And they read it. They're like, I can give it a shot. You know, what's the worst that can happen? If that helps to change like a couple people's perspectives. Then it's totally worth it for me because I didn't see too many role models when I was in the hospital. And I think it's very much so needed.
1: And what would you tell yourself at you know, right after the accident, or somebody at that point, point, you know, they're like, "Like, what would you say to them to kind of reflect back on what you've learned up to this point?"
0: Oh, I mean, I think it's necessary to go through a grieving process. It's a big change. I can't just tell them it's all going to get better. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to be in that state to even accept it. If I rolled in to the ICU when I was in the ICU, I would have been, "Screw this guy! I don't want to be in a wheelchair. I want to." fully get up and walking, be totally normal again, right? If you need to kind of go through those struggles and kind of go through that cycle, but not let it keep you down, right? I think where I would have needed future me the most is probably six to nine months out, right? At that point, I'm medically stable. Like I know I'm going to live probably dealing with some of the realities of my injury in terms of like what my new life is going to be like, but I really need that sort of kicking the ass, that motivation, that sort of seeing that like, all right, you can still thrive and live a well-balanced life despite all of this. It doesn't have to be physical disability. It can just be any sort of terrible thing that happens to
2: you. You need to go through a grieving process before you're ready to accept anything from the outside. If you're comfortable sharing, what's the self-talk like during the kind of grieving process, both to process and also to kind of balance pushing yourself forward, if that question is fair. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of it is learning to love yourself again. I can't even this. I can't lose that. Like who would want me? Right? Who would accept me? Right. It was a lot of that type of self talk. And that's really where Kenna was just so important. Giving me the love that I needed. Right. And just knowing like, hey, you are still lovable. I still love you. There's so many ways that like you can provide for me as my boyfriend, fiance, husband. Right. Like that's Really, where I think a lot of people don't have that, which is why they kind of just spiral or they stay there and they just don't have that belief into themselves. Because even with driving, like I didn't believe I could drive for five years. And then year six, it's like somebody told me that I could drive. McKenna's not going to give up on me. Then shit, I guess I'm driving better. I think a lot of times you do need somebody else other than yourself to kind of get you out of it. And I was really lucky to have Kenna there for me throughout multiple phases of the ups and downs by recovery.
1: So me and Andrew are ready to invest in wine now. Where do we go to invest in wine on VinoVest?
0: VinoVest.co. Personally, email me, Anthony at VinoVest.co. I can hook you up with one of our awesome team members if you want to talk to someone or if you're ready, just put in your preferences and go for it. You can be able to just do that directly through the website.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Anthony, and for sharing such a amazing story. You're an inspiration to me and Andrew as well. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate your time, guys.
1: Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, wld.show. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.